I, I go into every idea with a lot of passion. Uh, um, but that's what is required because an entrepreneur's passion is 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 or hurts her her best asset. So that's what you're really selling because you have to make people see the world uh, the way you see the world. It's a future that you're selling. You're selling a world two to three years hence. Um, and uh, uh, I think I, I love the product creation process. And uh, luckily in Netcore now, I have a lot of people who can take ideas to market and make them work. <laughs> so I can just focus on the creation. When I, I think I failed when I tried to sell these ideas. Hi, welcome to Forbes India's The Startup Fridays, which are weekly conversations with accomplished entrepreneurs, VC investors, and other folk who are doing significant work in India's startup ecosystem. You can find a new episode every Friday evening. I'm Hari Arakli, and my guest today is uh, Mr. Rajesh Jain. Is uh, fair to say he's one of India's original tech entrepreneurs. Rajesh is a serial entrepreneur and investor. And uh, in the world of entrepreneurship, uh, one of the things he's quite well known for is selling one of his earliest ventures, uh, India World Communications, uh, to SIFI. I think back then it was Satyam Infoway, uh, for $115 million uh, in 1999. Uh, one of the biggest internet deals in Asia at that time. Uh, today, he is uh, also founder and group MD of Netcore Cloud, which is a marketing automation technology company, which helps uh, thousands of marketers, or rather marketers at thousands of companies and brands, reach consumers anywhere they go online. Uh, Rajesh founded Netcore in 1997, and he has bootstrapped it to a $100 million ARR SaaS company that is profitable, and I think it's been profitable for some 15 years now, uh, and, and including a recent acquisition. Uh, and uh, he likes to call it a profit call, and we'll ask him more about that. Uh, Rajesh is also a deep thinker, and he's tried some interesting political experiments as well, uh, exploring ideas of uh, governance and prosperity. Uh, he, and he's shared his ideas uh, through his prolific writings uh, on his own blog, which you can find at rajeshjain.com. Uh, he has an engineering degree from IIT Bombay and then a master's from Columbia University. Welcome, sir, this morning. Fantastic you could make time for this. Great to be with you, Ari. All right. So uh, normally I would ask people for a brief backgrounder and things like that. But I think with you, there's so many things to ask you. Uh, let's jump right in. I'm going to jump right in. Uh, tell us about uh, how Netcore happened. What was the original idea? So... Uh Netcore has morphed uh, avatars quite a bit. So, but going back to the original 1997 start, when I was doing India World, uh, mm. we used to set up websites for a lot of companies. Uh, we had about 200 corporate sites that we managed. And one of the problems a lot of businesses faced at that time was getting incoming mails. Mm. Would come in. Uh, how do you uh, route them internally to different um, uh, people in the company so they could be responded to. Those are very early days, uh, 1997. So we set up a, uh, Netcode started as a Linux mail server company to set up intra internal email systems for companies. Microsoft Exchange used to be very expensive. So we used open source uh, Linux software uh, to get that going. Um, and that sort of business is, of course, uh, still there in an adapted way. Um, mm. uh, but uh, that was the origin of Netcore in 1997. I spun out Netcore from India World because when I used to go and talk to investors in 1998 or so, uh, it would be very confusing for them. Oh, so you're running a portals business and then you have this uh, tech software, enterprise mm. software company. So I figured rather than start on the defensive, just separate uh, the, the two, uh, the two uh, companies. 
Right, all right. And uh, I know that there have been a fair number of uh, pivots uh, along the way, as they like to say in today's uh, startup world. Uh, give us a sense of some of those pivots, uh, and then and maybe we can get to the point where Netco really began to start growing. So the first 10 years, uh, when I was leading Netcore and I sold Sifi in 99, and then a couple of years later, I went back to Netcore. Uh, but Netcore, first 10 years, we did, of course, those Linux mail servers, uh, and we still do that, by the way. Uh, but we also resell now Google and uh, Microsoft in the cloud. We also have a cloud version. Um, but in those first 10 years, I tried a lot of things. Uh, I thought I had this golden hand that uh, because I was successful once, uh, I could be successful with whatever idea I came up with. And um, uh, as it turned out, every idea that I tried between 2000 and 2007 failed. So I tried to do uh, sort of a thin client, thick server solution. We built one of the world's first blog search engines um, mm. uh, and lots of such things. Uh, but I could create some of those things, but we couldn't sell it. Um, so the first big decision that I made in 2007 was that I need to replace myself as CEO. Um, and I think that was the best uh, decision that we did at that time. Um, did in fact, uh, because that's when really Net Netcode started growing uh, uh, with a new set of solutions. And that's really um, uh, uh, the next part of the story. But the first 10 years uh, didn't grow much. We were, I think, stuck at about one crore revenue for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so tell us about the the next part of the story, as you called it. I mean, uh, at what point did you realize that you really something onto something at Netcore? And and I would imagine that is today the the marketing technology part of Netcore. So the uh, first part that we did was we uh, we started with um, uh, enterprise SMS uh, solutions. So mobile had started growing. This was two thousand and five seven period. Uh, we had tried a consumer SMS service and that didn't work out uh, very well because uh, the SMS costs uh, sort of went overnight in India from, I think, 1 paise to 10 paise because of TRAI's uh, charges. And we mm. were sending millions of uh, SMSs a day, hoping and monetizing a lot of those through advertising. And we couldn't jack up SMS rates, advertising rates on SMS. So I had to shut that down literally overnight. We had 4 million uh, subscribers on those free services. Um, Mm. Um, uh, but then we pivoted to leveraging that to uh, enterprise SMS. We realized the same platform could be used by enterprises to actually send out SMS service, uh, SMSs. And uh, that was the first thing. A uh, couple of years later, uh, and this is actually thanks to our old Linux email server business, which was there, enterprises started coming to us and saying, hey, you can do internal email. We've got these email lists from our customers. Can you help? send out mass mailing to them. So basically broadcast mail. And that was the origin of our email business. Uh, what we called EMM at that time, basically mass marketing uh, at that time, that was around 2008 or so. And these two businesses started doing very well. They were enterprise businesses. Uh, we had a lot of good customer outreach thanks to our earlier uh, Linux mail server business. And we were profitable very early on. Uh, we, we had the, the I shut down the consumer my my today SMS service so all the cash burn had stopped at that time, and uh, those uh, businesses continue to this state they are doing very well. Email of course now is the focus area for us. We are one of the largest players in Asia, India, Asia, and now expanding globally. In 2014-15 came the next sort of pivot, 
or, or rather addition, not pivot, because the original, the older stuff continued, uh, is that we added uh, the MarTech uh, stack. We started working on the MarTech stack. And the insight there was that while we were doing emails, again, customers started saying that we want to automate these campaigns. Okay, it's a lot of manual effort involved uh, sending out the emails. Uh, uh, can you help us do more? And we were also a little worried at that time that uh, uh, in case email and SMS is basically uh, sort of reduced uh, in the digital in the, uh, growing mobile and app era, uh, uh, what would happen to us? So we decided we needed to move up the stack. And uh, that is where the MarTech work started. So marketing automation uh, uh, stack uh, started getting built there and to which we have then augmented through uh, multiple uh, acquisitions uh, in the last few years. Uh, uh, there was uh, uh, Box.ai, which brought in search into the stack, uh, search personalization recommendations, mostly personalization and recommendations. Uh, and then there was Hansel.io, which brought in nudges. So inside nudges, contextual walkthroughs inside of app. And most recently, uh, Unboxed, which was a large $100 million uh, uh, acquisition investment for us, uh, which basically brought in on-site search. So uh, websites, uh, which are there, websites and apps, uh, the consumer sites. Uh, are, how can you get amazing search like you know you see on Amazon and so on. So that sort of mm. built out a full stack portfolio for, for us, uh, helping marketers, basically brand ma managers, marketers, product managers, engage, interact, communicate with their customers to drive better experiences. That's sort of Netcode story in a nutshell. Very nice. So uh, maybe you could sort of put it all together and uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, throwing the story forward. Give us a sense of uh, what uh, Netcore is today, what it has evolved into and, and where you're headed. So Netcore today is a uh, uh, $100 million plus, $100 million plus in ARR. Uh, so one of the largest, of course, uh, SaaS companies, B2B SaaS companies in India. Um, uh, the bulk of our revenues, of course, uh, come from India. So that's one big difference versus many other SaaS companies who tend to focus outside India uh, right from day one. Uh, I think India is a very large opportunity. Uh, uh, and it, by being close to our customers uh, sort of directly, there's a lot of learnings. Indian marketers are among now the best in the world because of mobile first, uh, uh, app first uh, focus almost from pretty much from day one. Uh, and there's a large uh, base, so there's great scale also now available in India. Uh, we expanded a few years ago into Southeast Asia, uh, and that's doing very well for us. Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, uh, Middle East, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Africa. And over the last uh, couple of years, uh, we've been expanding in the U in US and Europe, basically the same products, especially email. Uh, uh, working uh, very well there for customers. Uh, we have now about 75 customers uh, in the developed markets. Uh, Netcore itself, uh, unboxed, uh, uh, unboxed focus actually from day one was in the developed markets. So US, uh, Australia, uh, uh, and they have 150 plus customers there. So now we have a significant uh, presence in the developed markets, especially the US. Uh, profitability also was a very important uh, focus for us. Uh, uh, and that's something which I learned from my father 25 years ago, or even 30 years ago, when I started off as an entrepreneur, he said, do whatever you do, don't take on debt. Of course, in the early 90s in India, there was no venture capital. So for him, it was debt. Uh, he said, uh, 
uh, and of course we've not taken on debt and uh, we also haven't taken on venture capital both in india world and in netcore it's not that i haven't tried um every few years i've gone out uh, trying to raise ca- external capital but for various reasons it's not happened probably because i tell my expected valuation in the first meeting <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. uh anyway that's a different story but uh, going forward i think uh, there are a couple of things uh, how, how we are looking at how i i see the world i think the one good area, good thing is that uh, the brand customer relationship basically the marketing relationship especially in the b2c companies is here to stay uh, the channels will change the methodology of interactions will change uh, more data is now available so zero party first party data is available with brands so this greater need for personalization omni channel so that's how it's going to keep evolving with ai and so on so the good news is that the area we are in is is a rock solid area uh, it's uh, it's going to keep becoming more and more important the second strand which i see is the fact that i see big budgets shifting in the years to come from adtech to martech uh, adtech today is a 450 billion dollar industry worldwide uh, uh, almost 90% of it goes to google and uh, meta facebook basically and a little bit of post now amazon and tiktok but uh, uh, it's a massive industry and my belief is that half of that money is actually being wasted uh it's being wasted on account what i call ad waste it's basically on a two counts that uh there's reacquisition of customers happening and wrong acquisition so reacquisition is about so what's happening is and we all are customers of different brands so we will know intuitively what i'm going to talk about first is that we become customers of different brands and uh the brands are not taking care of us they are not building deeper relationships with us uh their focus tends to be more on the new new customers and therefore the the budget spent on retention growth engagement are much lower probably 90 on ad tech 10% on 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 the martech side of it and therefore we sort of churn uh, uh and then because we were good customers once upon a time we are attracted back uh, we are targeted back by them through again the uh, big tech platforms so a lot of money gets wasted there and the second big waste wasteful category actually is uh, wrong acquisition on the app side we know you know 30 day retention is uh, probably 25 30% which means uh, almost 70 75% of the customers which are acquired are uh, not there with the brand after uh, 25 uh, after a month so that's again waste and i believe that especially now that the era of free easy free money or easy cash or uh business is over there's a focus now back on to profitability and cash flows i think brands are going to realize that they've got to do a lot more with their existing customers you know segment them better figure out who their best customers are because best customers the top 20% best customers will account for probably 60% of revenue but 200% of profits if you actually factor in uh servicing costs and acquisition costs that are there so i think this mm-hmm. going to be a big shift this i believe the martech opportunity is just starting off uh, uh and if you take very good care of your existing customers make sure they come back with their friends and family i think it's a, it's a phenomenal uh a transformation that brands can do and that's the path to profitability what i call profit centric marketing mm. so if you look at it from uh, netcore's point of view uh talk about how that represents a large opportunity for you and maybe uh, explain 
what is the biggest problem that you are solving for your customers today? So, let's start with the opportunity for Netcore going forward. And it's not just for Netcore, but it's for pretty much every other company in the Martech space. And there are thousands of companies. It's really getting uh, brands to focus on existing customers. It's actually as simple as that. Uh, uh, in most uh, companies, the focus still tends to be on new acquisitions. Okay, so how many new customers did you acquire? It's like a, it's like a race out there to a land grab to get new customers. But what's not being discussed is the lifetime value of existing customers. How do I keep growing that? How do I figure out uh, 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 CLV, like customer lifetime value? How do I make the most of that relationship? I think that's where the shift needs to happen. And I believe over time, the big budget shift is what's going to drive the investments in MarTech. And for companies like Netcore, uh, I think the full stack offering, AI-driven full stack offering is, is very, very important because the availability of uh, customer data is, is increasing. Uh, in fact, uh, many brands don't even ask us a lot of things. And if they started asking, we'd be willing to share you know, for maybe some micro incentives. Uh, and that'll, because that's a win-win for both. Uh, brands then don't waste communications uh, sending to us. And we get better uh, uh, offers, better marketing uh, communications coming into us. So more personalized recommendations. So I think that's really the future of MarTech. And uh, the foundation for that is, and that's where uh, a lot of the focus in Netcore is, uh, that's where we are driving some of the innovations is, how do you build a better hotline between the brand and the customer? Now, I think I should explain the word hotline because uh, you know, it's like for, for a little older set of people, we'll remember, uh, we used to have these hotline phones in the 90s. I remember we had two small offices in Nariman Point and you know, you pick the phone up on one side and it rings on the other side. And someone answers, of course, you have people, their answer. You don't have to do the rotary dialing at that time. So uh, uh, today, a lot of the communications being sent by brands to customers is actually one way. So emails are typically just one way. The only thing you can do is really click on an email and go to a website or an app. Uh, SMS is largely one way. Uh, WhatsApp is now becoming open to brands and they are now bringing in interactivity in there. Again, push notifications is just one way. But there are some very interesting innovations coming in, which will make this communications two-way, especially an email. What I call, uh, and that's what we are one of the areas we are working on, is email 2.0. So interactive mails. You see, mails coming alive. You know, it's what I call the living emails. Uh, essentially, you can uh, uh, you don't need to go to the website. The website comes to you inside the mail. The app comes to you inside the mail. Uh, so it's incredible. You can collect a lot of data. You can do chat, search, uh, ratings inside the mail without having to click through. So I think that's one of the big, big things which is there. Uh, in a world of privacy and cookie-less uh, uh, future that's coming, getting zero-party data is going to be very, very important. Zero-party data is where customers, we customers, volunteer data to brands. So it's not, they don't have to sort of chase us and track what we are doing to even collect all that. We are telling them who we are. We are telling them what our next interests are. And therefore, they can personalize offerings to us. So this idea of atomic rewards, you know, what I call that uh, 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 micro incentives for non-monetary transactions. So for transa actual transactions, credit card companies give you points, brands have loyalty programs. Think of this as loyalty 2.0. So like email 2.0, there's loyalty 2.0. Uh, essentially that 
if 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 uh, when we do a rating, when we give an NPS rating to a brand, can we get some small micro incentives? Could be sort of points. What I, my writings I've called these mu mu points, and so on. But this is where I see the future. That there's a lot of untapped opportunity in the brand customer relationship, which I think has to be leveraged through innovations. And in the last 20 years, especially on the email channel, the only innovation which really happened was text to HTML. And that's email is still one of the best ROI channels, one of the most powerful channels. We do almost uh, 20 billion emails a month uh, globally, uh, India being the largest. Uh, for us, India, we have a 75% share of all emails. Um, and I think uh, the power of the email channel has probably not yet been uh, exploited at all. I think there's a lot to come going forward. Uh, and there's a lot of innovation which can be driven there. So I think that's one of the key areas that uh, um, uh, Netcore is really working on. Now that we have a very good foundation, um, how do we keep building on uh, 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 ensuring better brand customer relationships, really more engaging relationships, better experiences, and all of this lead to leads to faster conversions, more revenue from existing customers. Which will then help brands cut down on the on the just the uh, sort of uh, wasteful spending on new customers. In fact, do it right, and you can incentivize existing customers to do referrals to get in new customers like them. So all of this has really been been very untapped uh, going forward because of the 90-10 skew in ad tech versus martech spending, and that's the big shift. Uh, the other thing, uh, Ari, and what we want to look at in Netcore is. Uh, uh, two two things. Number one is uh, global expansion. Uh, while the India markets and Southeast Asia are large, markets like US, Europe are probably 30 to 50 times larger than what uh, India offers. We know the solutions work in India. How is it that we can make them work? They're all SaaS solutions, cloud-based solutions. How can we tap into those markets? And we've got some very good early wins. But now those businesses have to be scaled. So just as the IT services companies uh, did a generation ago, uh, can there be a new uh, technology product companies out of India? Uh, the SaaS, of course, is 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 the way to to go through the cloud. And the second is uh, that uh, we want to look at an IPO in the next uh, nine, uh, nine to twelve months. Uh, we are twenty five percent employee owned, uh, uh, so it uh, uh, we've had one of the largest uh, ESOPs ever, I think, in in almost any company that I can think of. Um, and we want to make sure that they benefit from the liquidity that a public listing gives. And also a public listing is a way for us to build what I call, in the words of Jim Collins, a build to last or an enduring great company. I mean, there are some fantastic stories of companies who've been there for a long time and who've delivered consistent returns. So I was reading about a company called Transdime, uh, uh -huh. um, which is an aerospace in the US, over 27 years. The CAGR for earliest earliest investors is thirty six percent. I mean seventeen hundred, I think fifty times return over a twenty seven year period. So I think it's I'm very cognizant that as we get investors, we've got to make sure that we deliver returns. I mean we are finally working for customers, employees, and uh, future investors. Uh, and so that's the track, you know, customers on one side, employees, and investors. Those are the three stakeholders that uh, we are working for, and we need to. Delight them in the years to come. Mm. Uh, I, I want to ask, of course, immediately one follow-on question on the future of Netcore. But 
Before that, briefly, maybe you could give us a sort of layman's understanding of what is at the heart of the technology that you have put together so far, including the acquisitions, etc. I mean, I would imagine at some point it will become a reasonably cohesive platform, uh, which is sort of comprehensive rather than offering point solutions. So just give us a sense of what that tech is about. Yeah, very good question, because I think it's important to understand how the sort of backend works, because we all experience it. We get the app notifications, we get the SMSs, we get the emails. Uh, lots of us get probably hundreds or hundreds of these uh, in a day across all the channels. How is that happening? It's companies like Netcore, uh, which are powering a lot of this. So the starting point is the communications channel. Uh, so there are two parts, actually. There are the push. Uh, messaging, which basically the communications which goes out, which brings people back to the website or the app. Okay, so I, I, when I send you an email, when I send you an SMS or an app notification, it basically uh, gets you back, gets you to the brand property because that's where the transactions are getting done. Um, so it's essentially being able to communicate at scale. Email, we have our own tech infra. SMSs, uh, we have to, of course, route through the operators. Uh, um, uh, uh, and a lot of this is, uh, and push notifications again goes through the app ecosystem for sending out uh, through the tech layers for sending out the uh, notification, the push notifications. Uh, and WhatsApp is also now emerging as a as a channel. So WhatsApp also has enabled uh, all of this, um, the the solutions for sending out push messages. Now, second part is what happens when I come on to the website or the app. So typically, what happens is smart tech companies have a small piece of code which is goes on to the website uh, or and the app in the SDK, what we call it. Uh, it's a piece of code which basically collates all the data, all the actions that uh, we as customers are doing on the website or the app, makes it available for the brand, and then allows the brands to then decide what the next best action is. So they can do segmentations. Mm -hmm. Okay, people looked at these pages. If I looked at a specific page, uh, and I did not maybe complete a purchase. Automation can kick in and say that, and we have all experienced this. Maybe after a few hours, it'll tell you, oh, you left this item in the shopping cart. Or after two days, it'll send, it'll send you an email which says, you showed interest in this product, but you have not bought it. Would you like to buy it? It could even give an offer after seven days saying, okay, here's a 5%, 10% uh, discount. So all of this basically automates, makes it very easy for marketers to create one-to-one -one or one-to-few or one-to-many journeys. So you think of this as a customer journey. So what is the goal a marketer has? How do I, on a scale of uh, tens of millions, create those personalized experiences, which results in faster transactions? Because at the end of the day for them, they've got to convert customers and ensure they come back for more because otherwise they are losing money on the first transaction typically because of the cost of acquisition. So this is where MarTech comes in. The underlying uh, uh, foundation is what we would call a customer data platform. Then there is the automation layer, which basically adds in uh, the journeys uh, and the what we call the orchestration layer, the customer journeys and so on, which can be automated based on triggers or based on the data that's there. And then there is the personalizations, which get shown up on the website. So based on what you are seeing, what you are browsing, uh, and what others like you have done, and we'll, we'll show you, or the, the software will basically show you more relevant products, 
linked with what your interests are. All of this helps in creating a very, very good customer experience, which finally, hopefully, leads to conversion and retention and uh, uh, future purchases, so repeat purchases. So that's where all of the MarTech technology layers sort of come together to deliver this experience layer for end customers. Okay, back to my question about uh, the future of uh, Netcore. If there is a $450 billion market, half of which is going to shift away from ads to marketing experiences, uh, do you think Netcore Cloud could become a billion-dollar revenue company? That is our hope. Um, I think if we keep growing at a minimum uh, 25%, uh, we should be 10x in uh, uh, 10 years. Uh, hopefully, we can do it faster than that. Uh, following the example of companies like TransTime, which I mentioned. Now, there are sort of, if I look at it, there are three horizons at this point of time for us for growth. Okay, so first is that we have our business as usual, Netcore and Unbox now. Uh, how do we keep uh, 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 growing with uh, better features, et cetera, with our existing customers? Uh, and of course, uh, new, new customers. The second is the innovations. So the ideas which I spoke about earlier, email 2.0, uh, loyalty 2.0. These are innovations which can actually drive newer growth horizons. Uh, like, for example, email 2.0 can actually help us tap into the US markets. Email has been there for a long time. So, if I have to now get customers to switch, I mean, US is probably three or four billion dollars in email uh, revenue. Uh, companies are quite happy using their existing uh, email service providers. If I have to go, if I have to get them to switch, I got to use some sort of innovations. And we believe that our email 2.0 ideas, which has even been recognized by Forrester as being sort of cutting edge, the AI engines that we have, can help us break through. So the second horizon is really innovations that we can continue to keep coming up with going forward. And the third is acquisitions. There are thousands of companies in this space uh, while we have done a very good job of building a full stack and even integrating uh, the acquisitions that we've done into our full stack, uh, of course, powered by AI, uh, we think that more and more over time, marketers will want fewer and fewer vendors to work with. Because every, like what you said earlier, the, the point solutions add up to complexity. You know, the integration which is there, the data gets siloed, AI becomes, becomes very hard for AI to work on siloed data uh, and so on. Uh, so, uh, and therefore, they'll want fewer and fewer solutions, especially the mid and probably upper mid market. Enterprise may still want either do it in-house or get the best of breed uh, uh, solutions, which they integrate themselves. But the bulk of the market will really want uh, a single stack uh, uh, pretty much put together, which just works out of the box so that marketers can focus on the on the customer experience part of it rather than worrying too much about the, about the tech. Uh, and that is where I think uh, consolidation is going to happen in this space uh, because there are just too many companies uh, with uh, suboptimal uh, product solutions. And we also recognize that we cannot do every innovation in-house. Uh, and that's the other reason for the IPO that uh, gives us also a currency uh, besides just cash, internal cash accruals for doing acquisitions. In fact, many of the best companies in the world when I'm in, in, uh, are actually built on uh, acquisitions. Uh, companies like Danaher in the software space, there's a company called Constellation Software, 
in India in the early days, uh, the Piramals did an amazing job in acquisitions in pharma. Uh, so I think one of the skill sets you asked about the future, one of the skill sets we have to build internally is how to uh, do acquisitions, almost treat acquisitions like a sales process. How many companies did you meet? Okay, what's the funnel for acquisitions looking like? And then how do we do integrate? How do we make sure the founders stay on? Uh, uh, so there are some very interesting models. I think these are questions which I, not, I would not think about probably two or three years ago, but I think every few years as you become bigger, I think a new set of uh, opportunities and challenges arise and that's what I'm working to solve. All right, excellent. So let's switch to uh, talk about your own personal journey, uh, last three decades plus. And uh, let me start with the simplest idea. You're from Mumbai. Uh, were you born there? Did you grow up there? I, I was born in Pune. My mom was from there. Um, um, but uh, early years were all spent in Bombay, uh, right up till IIT Bombay. So St. Xavier's High School in Bombay, St. Xavier's College in Bombay. Uh, and then uh, IIT Bombay for four years, uh, great time there. Um, and then um, I went to, I did my master's at Columbia University uh, in New York, but I spent four years uh, in the US. So what happened was that when I left uh, for the US, my father told me that, look, uh, you're going to finish your master's in nine months. You're going to work there for about two years. And then you have to come back to India, whatever you do, whatever you want to do, you have to do it here. He said this is what he had done in the mid-60s and despite a lot of family challenges uh, that were there. So he said, if I could come back to India in the mid-60s, there is no reason for you to stay there. So my decision to return to India was actually made before I left for the U.S. <laughs> All right. Uh, what did your parents do? So my father uh, uh, is a civil engineer. Uh, he, was a gold, he grew up in Rajasthan. Uh, he was a gold medalist from MBM Engineering College. Uh, and uh, he, uh, so I've learned a lot from him through the years. I mean, uh, he came back to India and then uh, worked and then became a structure, became, set up his own multiple businesses. Uh, uh, many of them as an entrepreneur did not work out. Uh, a few worked out. Uh, but uh, it was basically a structural engineer designed a lot of the skyscrapers in, in, um, in, in uh, Mumbai, RCC uh, consultant. And I remember uh, my early days and uh, I would walk with him and he would take me to all the buildings. And that time my dream was I have to build bridges. You know, For some reason, I had seen some books that he had at home. But then what changed my life was uh, he bought a computer in 19, uh, 1982 uh, or 83. Okay. One of probably the first computers in India. He, he never knew how to use it, but he was always forward looking. I mean, we used to get all of the, a lot of the foreign publications at home because he said, Knowledge is what took me out from my village and uh, uh, Rajasthan to the US and to the state to where we are today. And you have to keep reading. So you have to keep learning on what's happening in the world. And uh, he bought a computer. And then after college, I was in the 11th standard, you know, time past time at that time. Um, I uh, started uh, going to his office over the computer and my mother and he, I mean, my mother and me actually learned how to operate the computer. Uh, so my mother had, of course, uh, so very well educated, uh, but she had never done any computer course. And we learned, she did a course, learned basic programming. I learned it on my own. And uh, that is what changed my life. That's what made me fall in love with computers. And uh, 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 that's sort of the, one of the turning points 
uh, in my life. My mother's been a homemaker, taking care of uh, that time my me and my younger sister. Yeah, in fact, I was going to ask you next about you know looking back, what are your uh, earliest memories of you know the biggest influences that now you realize had a big bearing on your career. So yeah, this is really interesting. Um, uh, what was your very first job? So I've only done one job in my life. Um, that was at Ninex in the US. Yes. Uh, After finishing my master's in um, nine months, exactly like what my father said. Columbia did not have a thesis, so I could take a couple of courses in summer and wrap it up. Uh, it was a tough time looking for a job. Uh, this was in 1989. I think it was sort of maybe a little bit of recent recession types in the US or whatever, but um, it was very difficult. I only got one offer. Uh, that too after I think two, three months of looking. Uh, and that was from 9X. It was, 9X was one of the large baby bell uh, telecom companies. Uh, it had come out of the split of the regional companies from AT&T. And mm. uh, 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 I was in, I remember the day I got the offer, I was in California trying to get some interviews set up. And that time we had voicemail, you know, you had a phone number and some people had to leave you voicemail. So I was checking my voicemail from all the resumes I'd sent. And uh, uh, I'd got a call saying that you, 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 you've been offered a job at 9X. We are sending you the letter, which of course went to my home and I went to where I was staying in New York. But please call this number and uh, your prospective manager would just like to speak to you. Um, so I, I called up immediately. And uh, uh, before he could say anything, he said, I accept. And he said, don't you want to know what your salary will be? I said, no, no, I don't care. I'm joining. I didn't have, of course, any other uh, option at that time. Um, of course, the comp was quite good at that time. Um, and uh, I worked at 9X, fantastic experience for about two years and four months. And uh, that was the time when my father said, it's time to come back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I guess you decided to honor your father's uh, uh, wishes. Uh, he came back. But in your mind, did you ever think that uh, staying in the US, uh, and also because you were of an entrepreneurial uh, bent of mind, uh, might have been a, a, a more interesting choice, uh, if nothing else, back then? Uh, when I look back, I don't think so, because the decision for me to come back was a, was a done deal. In fact, the car I owned in the US was like a 10-year-old car, which I could sell off at like a minute's notice or even leave it if <laughs> nothing happened. The lease on my apartment. Do you remember what model car you drove? Yeah, I think it was a Buick uh, at that time. My uh, rental apartment had a had a one month uh, lease ending clause, so I knew I had to go back at some point of time. So it was a very sparse life, Spartan life, um, because I knew I had to go back. Um, and even though I had seen a lot of the downs and few ups in my father's life, I was I said I want to become an entrepreneur. That's I think uh, was there. Um, and uh, so in fact, when I came back, it was with another. Uh, friend who was working in the US at that time, also from ID Bombay, a year senior, and then Sanjay Jain. And then we had started, we, we got started together in India in uh, uh, mid-92. Mm. And uh, have you ever thought back about uh, why you wanted to be an entrepreneur? I mean, I guess definitely some influence from your father uh, and that part. Uh, uh, have you consciously thought about what drove you to being an entrepreneur? I'd say the, the largest influence, like you said, was my father. And I think just the thought of uh, sort of uh, 
the freedom i think that that is the freedom of doing things i think more importantly now that it's a good question now that i think about it i thought that with my iit education and with my columbia and my us experience i would not fail i was like god's gift to this country when i came back um of course the first two and a half years after i came back were a horror because everything went wrong i failed at everything i tried um but even through those tough days uh, uh the the desire to return back to the us etc uh, was not there mm. give us one or two examples of the kinds of things you tried that didn't work out so at that time um uh there was a multimedia database product that we were trying to build uh image processing product uh, so where you could take in images from microscopes and medical instruments and uh, uh process them basically you could do a lot of you could count objects so it was the demos used to be fantastic but then i realized yeah. that the buying cycle in this was like 2 years because it had to be done through tenders most of the buyers were the government organizations r&d organizations and i realized i could not survive the uh, that 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 long uh, because uh, it would just take forever i mean private institutions uh, were not very keen on these types of solutions um and then sort of at some point of time you realize uh, uh, that your business is failing and it still takes you a lot of time to start looking ahead because you can't imagine it is happening to you that's the problem mm. uh, briefly tell us uh, how india world happened india world came as an outcome of all the failures um, um in fact when i think back if even one of those ideas that worked there would have not been any india world um so after two and a half years when we had my last pro, pro, the, you know, third or sec, second or third venture which was there in the image processing i realized it's not going to work out um i used to read a lot and that time i started this was uh, when you look uh, when i look back it was 1994 the second half probably summer of 1994 lot of the in the fortune and those kinds of magazines which used to get at home uh there used to be articles about the internet you know that this is going to be something big and transformative and then i i decided i i i went to the us in september october 1994 to spend a couple of months there uh to learn i had these ideas but then i said i see there was no commercial internet in india at that time so i could not experience the internet uh in india uh, at all uh here um at that time there was this visit usa uh, ticket which used to be there so delta airlines like offered 300 dollars unlimited travel for two months uh on standby so very cheap perfect for entrepreneurs you could take unlimited flights uh uh so once i went there you know the first thing i did was get myself an internet dial up connection and when i started looking and playing around i said this is an amazing world so then the idea started coming together so uh again many times you know small small things come together uh, ck prallad's book had just been published at that time competing for the future and i remember sitting i was staying at a friend's place uh, at that time uh and during those two months uh, one of my id friends and i i bought that book i read it cover to cover and in that book were the postits which had the business plan for india world so as i was reading all the ideas sort of started crystallizing in my mind in part because of my own experiences having lived in the us mm. and was unable i was unable to get information about india when i wanted to actually come back newspapers would takes about almost 10 days to come to the columbia library um 
India Today, which I used to subscribe, would take at least a week after, and it was a fortnightly. So by then you read about it; it was very late. All you had was some uh, Usenet groups, news groups, which used to be there, which you used to rely on for uh, sort of news. And then I said, you know, there must be uh, people like me globally who'd love to get information from India. The internet can be a great bridge. So I call it an electronic information marketplace. Um, can be a great bridge for all of these people. Uh, uh, and that's how sort of the idea uh, originated of uh, using the internet to create, I mean, all these words sort of came in a little bit later, an India-centric portal. And that's how I launched India World in March 1995. So I came back. I had no no connections with anyone, no background in media or content. Uh, we were basically a bunch of few. I had a few software engineers. I had to actually cut down the team that I had. I was here about 15 people. I let go, I think, almost 10 of those people. We were down to five. I just got married. I got my wife to work with me. I mean, she's a CA. And then I said, look, I don't have money. I don't have to pay you at least. <laughs> um, and I think that was probably... Uh, one of the best decisions I did, She's, she, she turned out to be far, far better than me in running a business <laughs> uh, and doing anything pretty much. And I sent out letters to probably 40, 50 editors and or publishers in the country saying, I'm setting this thing up. I would love to get your content, you know, uh, uh, to put it out on the internet and so on. Two people, I mean, quite, I, I managed to get quite a few, but from the media side, I got a reply back from... R.K. Lakshman and people in Times of India were amazed that he actually wrote back because I realized that Lakshman cartoons had a great audience outside of India. I mean, you would talk to people, they would just love, wait for those, you know, how do you get those cartoons? They would miss those actually. You don't, you don't get those there. Um, and the second big one was India Today, uh, uh, the, the news magazine, which a lot of people used to subscribe to there, but again, came used to come very late. So I got a reply back from um, Arun Puri. Uh, at that time. Um, and I went and got a meeting then uh, there. Uh, and then uh, I got a lot of others once some of the things started falling in place. So Amar Chitra Katha, um, and some of the data quest group publications, stock quotes came in from DSP Merrill Lynch who happened to be in the same building as me. It was all cold calling. I had no contacts, no one I knew, no family connections in all of this typical entrepreneur with no fear of rejection. Okay. Uh, so and we, so when I launched in March, I had almost 40 sections on India world. We had short stories. We had poetry. Uh, uh, we had uh, Sucheta Dalal and Debashi's Basu's, Basu's book, The Scam, which we had put online. They thankfully gave us permission to see uh, to carry it uh, out there. Uh, Amar Chitra Katha from Anand Pai uh, and the India Book House group was there. So uh, a lot of this, so there was a lot of diversity uh, that was there and it became an instant hit. I mean, I did not have to do any marketing, word of mouth spread. And to make money, I had uh, put a small subscription charge of $20. I started with $59, but I realized Indians are not willing to pay. So in three weeks, I got it down to $20, which stayed for about a year and a half. But then I, I stopped it when one day, you know, a friend, I, you know, I was just looking at all the subscribers. We had about 5,000 after one and a half years. And I said, G.com has only one subscriber. And then I, I wrote to someone and I said, how is it? I, I, I think I met someone and he said, you know, Rajesh, all of us share the same uh, one person has subscribed. He's sent us the login and password and we all <laughs> use that email ID. And I said, this is not going to work at all. <laughs> and there were very few ways you could actually control the sharing at that time. It was the very early days on the tech side. So then uh, 
then i had a sort of dispute with my hosting uh, entity in the us uh, so i had to restart all the way from scratch and again in an entrepreneur's life you have all these ups and downs um, but then some good came out a lot of good came out of it because in 97 uh, i lost the indiaworld.com domain uh, but then i started with indian names samachar.com khel.com thosh.com bavarchi.com and there were 10 others like this but these are the four popular four ones which became very popular uh, and uh, they became uh, the home pages and samachar became the home page de facto home page for indians uh, in the us you know the bavarchi the recipes which were there so the popularity skyrocketed and again that would not have happened had i not had that problem about the indiaworld.com domain you know i tell entrepreneurs many times and you go through tough times when the event is actually happening you feel it's the end of the world but then you look back maybe you will realize that maybe that was the best thing to have happened it brought out the best in you all these hindi domain names i mean indian domain name indian words came when my wife and i were in a we had gone to visit some temples in rajasthan in and we were driving back from uh, uh, temple nakoda ji to jodhpur airport and on the way we you know let's think up some names for new dot com domains uh, because i said we'll have to launch this thing and this was the contrary idea at that time ari because everyone followed yahoo and yahoo was a single portal and that's how i modeled india world also uh, uh, and then a lot of people told me it won't work because you know people aren't going to remember all of these names but it turned out to be exactly the opposite removing that one click to get to the cricket page or the recipes page made all the difference that was india world the origin okay we have probably another 5 to 8 minutes uh, two things i definitely want to ask you about uh, i guess uh, folks uh, you know who are interested in your work uh, uh, quite a few of them of course know what you've done but probably not many uh, would have known about uh, novation and uh, uh and and again people interested in technology uh might might know of mr omalik's coverage of tech and i i stumbled upon his uh, you know the interview he did with you back those times as just in fact from yesterday evening i've been thinking you know if uh, rajesh and his co-founders and i think the wealth from india world sale gave you the opportunity to invest in some startups and co-found some of these things I, I was just thinking that you know if if these guys had been able to do that hundred dollar laptop or hundred dollar computer today, you know with a geo connection, maybe it would have really taken off. I mean, I just want you to think a lot about that. Yeah, I mean the hundred dollar PC um, in the early two thousands, um, Professor Ashok Junjunwala at IIT Madras and uh, um, others, uh, we had actually worked on trying to do that. Alok Singh was the CEO of Novatium. Uh, that was that's one of the ideas i'm i'm very sad about that didn't work out you know, for various reasons we could not make it work in the market uh, yeah at that time i think one of the challenges also was internet connectivity uh, because these are thin clients so all of the processing has to take place on the or it on the server side yeah so and my assumption was that broadband and uh, a lot of that those that connectivity will actually grow fast in india but that did not happen um uh, Uh, but in a way and i think the second thing which sort of happened i think is uh, i think in 2007 apple came up with the iphone and that was right. a transformative interface uh, and of course later on many a decade later jio came along um we started doing a lot of things on our phone even with the iphone so the phone started replacing uh, things so i mean in some ways uh, when i when i look back 
my 30 years as an entrepreneur, there are probably, I, I wrote about it once on my blog, there are 30 plus failures, I think one for every year. <laughs> I keep coming up with lots of ideas. There are two big successes, of course, India World and Netcore, but, uh, but that's the story of an entrepreneur. I mean, many times I, I go into every idea with a lot of passion, uh, um, but that's what is required because an entrepreneur's passion is 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 or hers her her best asset. So that's what you're really selling because you have to make people see the world uh, the way you see the world. It's a future that you're selling. You're selling a world two to three years hence. Um, and uh, uh, I think I, I love the product creation process. And uh, luckily in Netcore now, I have a lot of people who can take ideas to market and make them work. <laughs> so I can just focus on the creation. When I, I think I failed when I tried to sell these ideas. Fair enough. All right. The other question I was uh, interested in was that, and, and I've asked this uh, to other uh, senior industry folks as well, you know, this uh, entrepreneurs, this tension between uh, a founder's vision and uh, the CEO's mandate of being accountable to boards and other stakeholders. You seem to have figured that out uh, early. You brought in a professional CEO and... Uh, I was just wondering, uh, how did you figure that out? I mean, that others can learn from. So two things, I think. Number one is that the decision I made when I got a CEO uh, first time, and we've had three CEOs in Netcode in the last 15 years. Uh, Abhijit was our first CEO. Kalpit uh, is the CEO now, and Girish was there in between. When, I, when Abhijit came in, the one decision I made was that there only has to be one leader in the company, one decision maker. So if I disagreed with Abhijit at any point of time, I would not make my disagreements public. I would talk to him privately. And that stays even, that's a rule I follow even to this day. Because the moment people realize that there are two power centers in the company, things will fall apart. You cannot create two power centers. So even today, Kalpit is responsible for every decision. I may own, my family, me and my family may own 75%, but uh, running the company, it's Kalpit's call or every, all the time. And when I even do things, I, I go to him and I tell him what I'm doing. And I, I pick up the areas that I love. I think the other thing is for a founder to decide what are your strengths. And I realized my strengths are sort of envisioning the future, reading, thinking, imagining what tomorrow's world is going to be like, uh, spending time interacting with customers, not necessarily on the selling process, but selling them on a vision for tomorrow's world. Uh, and so I'm not a very details-oriented person. I don't like getting into the uh, nitty-gritty of running uh, a business. I don't want anyone reporting to me, ideally. Um, uh, so that also gels very well. Uh, on the you know the first point, I just remember a phrase, you know, which Girish had said, it comes from Intel. He said that they, they had this phrase, uh, uh, disagree and commit. So he said, if you have differences in a meeting, you can disagree. But if once the group decides on a path of action, you have to commit to it. There's no sulking. There's no backbiting. And I think in my case, at least, that's what I've tried to do. Even when decisions which I've probably not agreed on have happened through these years, it has to be the CEO's call. Otherwise, the company will fall apart. Fantastic, sir. It's absolutely, completely run out of time. And uh, what an amazing conversation. For a technology history student like me, it was a bit of a masterclass. Thank you so much for making time for this. Uh, truly enjoyed it, sir. Hope to keep the conversation going. Thank you very much, Ari. Great chatting with you. Okay, that was Mr. Rajesh Jain at Nelco Cloud. That's it for this week's Startup Fridays. 
Until next time, I hope uh, you have a great Friday uh, and a wonderful weekend ahead. And I hope you're staying safe and doing well.